Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, people of God. You may not think of yourself as a theologian, but let me assure you, you are. Now, that sounds like really some kind of high shelf kind of role, but the fact is, anytime we think about what we believe or we talk about what we believe, we become theologians. We might think about our faith as our authentic relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We can have a very good faith. And the minute we begin to talk about our faith, we become theologians. It's not a bad word. It's not a curse word. It is somebody who thinks about what they believe and tries to understand it and express it. There are some people who give their whole life to being theologians and trying to help the church understand what do we mean when we talk about God as our Father and the Spirit of God as the Holy Spirit and Jesus as the Son. And we have depended upon these good minds and devoted spirits for a long time as the church. But we're all theologians. We all think about it. As soon as we pray the Lord's Prayer and say, Our Father, which art in heaven, we have become theologians. We've said, I believe in God and that God is understood as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who dwells in heaven. We've started talking about our faith even when we pray. And this morning, I'm going to ask you to be the best theologians you can. We're going to wade in some deeper water than we usually do as we think about what it means for us as the church to confess God as we did in our song earlier Blessed Trinity, God in three persons. What do we mean by that? In 1993, uh, excuse me, in 2007, William Paul Young wrote a book that became very popular uh, among Christian people and also very controversial. He was trying to work through some tragedies in his own life. And he did this by writing a book that became a New York Times bestseller. The book was called The Shack. You may have read that. It's a story about a man named Mac, whose young daughter had been abducted and murdered. And Mac encounters God in a small mountain shack. And there in that shack, God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, as the Trinity, but in a kind of unconventional way. Uh, that was intended to undo some of Mac's prejudices and reshape some of his assumptions. Uh, he revealed himself as father, who in the shack was a large African-American woman named Papa. The son, Jesus, was a Mideastern man, and the Holy Spirit was Sarayu, an Asian woman. And over the hours he spends with these three figures in the shack, Mac comes to understand more and more about God's love for him, about the intense suffering that he's endured in the loss of his daughter, and the way that God is working his way out and well out in, in history. Now, the book is fiction, obviously, but it's also kind of an allegory. Paul Young did not mean to say, this is what I think God is like, in some literal kind of way. But he is writing imaginatively to try to get us to understand that God is more complex and more 
mysterious than maybe we've ever understood. The shack was both loudly applauded by some people and strongly condemned by others, as you can probably imagine. Al Mohler, who was president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a leading fundamentalist in those days, trashed the shack and said that it was deeply subversive, scripturally incorrect, and downright dangerous. Eugene Peterson, whom you know as the fellow who paraphrased the Bible as the message said, when the imagination of a writer and the passion of a theologian cross-fertilize, the result is a novel on the order of the shack. This book has the potential to do for our generation what John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress did for his. It's that good. So there's the spectrum among evangelicals. Paul Young did not set out to explain the Trinity. That wasn't his purpose. He was really trying to help us understand how God's work is present even in suffering. And so you can sort of give him credit for wrestling with two of the most difficult issues available in one book. This morning we're going to only wrestle with one of those. Uh, the idea of Trinity. This Sunday, this Sunday following Pentecost has or centuries been set aside in the church's life across the world as Trinity Sunday. And that's a little bit unfortunate. That's sort of like having a Jesus Sunday, uh, when the fact is our lives are wrapped up in God as Father, Son, and Spirit. Having just one day to think about that is a little bit um, unfortunate. But the reality is that the idea and the understanding of God as Trinity permeates the church's life. When we baptize, as you saw Debbie do in the video, we do it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is the church's reality we live in. We interact and worship with God the Father, with God the Son, with God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God. When we gather around the Lord's Supper, the, uh, around the Lord's table, we're celebrating that the Father sent the Son into the world for our redemption and that the Spirit has made the Son known to us and the Spirit has drawn us together and formed the church. At the Lord's table, we're interacting with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The justice and equality and freedom and generosity that we try to embody and want to embody as the church of Jesus Christ has its origin in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who the church has confessed for centuries as co-equal, not one over the other in any sort of way. And we learn to live that out in Christian community with one another. We know and worship and serve God as Father, Son, and Spirit on a daily basis. The reality of God as three in one, as Trinity, is not some ancient idea that once a year we're supposed to take off the shelf of some theological museum and put it on display and dust it off and think about it and put it away. And It's what we live in every single day. We live in a Trinity, tri-unity, permeated world and universe. It's how we worship. It's who God is. It's how God has revealed himself. But it is a mystery. About 740 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah was uh, caught up in a vision. His vision formed the background for that song we sang earlier, Holy, Holy, Holy. King Uzziah, Judah's king, had died. There was no one on the throne at the moment. 
But Isaiah was taken into the temple, and there he was able to see that though Judah's throne may have been empty, heaven's throne was always occupied, that God was on his throne, and assured him that God remained sovereign. These are familiar words from Isaiah chapter 6, but follow along as I read them. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, these angelic creatures. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken off the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and speak to this people. The seraphs, these strange six-winged heavenly creatures that are described there, Worship God continually and cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. To speak of God as holy is to say that God is not part of this creation. God is completely separate from everything that God has created. To say holy, holy, holy in the Hebrew language is to say that to the nth degree. There's no way to say good, better, best in Hebrew. You just repeat the adjective. So at the end of creation, God saw that his creation was what? Very good. In Hebrew, good, good. To say holy, holy, holy is to say that God is infinitely holy. There is a separation between God and God's creation. The theologians, those professional ones, sometimes use the expression that there is an infinite qualitative difference between God and all of creation. So when we speak of God's love, for example, we're only approximating what that means. We know what love is. But to say that God loves is to say that God's love is holy. It is infinitely, qualitatively different from anything we know as love. It is love to the nth degree, a way we can't grasp or understand. To speak of God's justice as holy justice is to say that God's justice is infinitely, qualitatively different from what we understand to be justice, and on with God's mercy and other qualities, his wrath, his goodness. Anything that we say about God is qualified by the fact that he is holy, holy, holy. He's not like us. Please, as a good theologian, never speak of God as the man upstairs, as the big man in the sky, or any of those cultural things. He is holy, holy, 
holy, different than us, far above us. And so, consequently, we really shouldn't expect to understand him very well, should we? No, we shouldn't. We're left with comparisons and analogies, and all of those things are faint and incomplete. To speak of God's love is a faint, incomplete statement to make about what is true of God's love. We can't do justice to speak of him accurately. But God has chosen to reveal himself to us. God has chosen to come to us and say, I want you to know what I'm like so that we could sing those songs we sang today about mercy and justice and faithfulness and pardon and all of those sort of things. Because God has revealed himself to us. He's invited us to know him better, to ponder the mysteries as best we can. One of my theologian friends is a man named Roger Olson. He just retired at Truett Seminary, same time I did. He was named Professor Emeritus there. He had served there so long. And he writes his theology books. They may be big and fat, some of them are, but they're all written with the cookies on the low shelf. All of us can read them and understand them. He writes for the church. And he said, surely if God is God and not a creature, God's inner life and its workings must be incomprehensible finite minds like ours. On the other hand, we must avoid using God's incomprehensibility as an excuse for refusing to trace the clues of divine revelation as far as they will take us in understanding God. God is not honored or glorified by lazy thinking about him. He's revealed himself so that his human creatures might know him and be transformed by knowing him. So it's worth wading into the waters of Trinity, even if we do it but once a year. But we live in it all the time. The word Trinity means triunity, the three in one. It's not a word that shows up a single time in the Bible, is it? But it is there in Scripture that we have the raw materials given to us for understanding God in this way. It's the way God has revealed himself, particularly through Jesus. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, God is, God is said to be one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall worship the Lord your God. Neither those ancient Jews nor any of those early Christians who were also Jews thought for a moment that there was more than one God. In fact, to worship more than one God or to worship idols was considered the worst of sins. They were raised steeped in this understanding that there is truly only one God and that God is one. And Christianity, strangely, grew out of the soil that commitment to the belief in one true God. And yet it was in God's revelation among the Christians that the idea of Trinity had to emerge because of what God revealed in Jesus. The New Testament writers clearly affirm that Jesus was God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. By him were all things created, and without him was not anything created that was created. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right there at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we're told that the Logos, the Word that was with God and was God, was one with God. He revealed God. He spoke God's Word to us. And yet, He was also the Creator, the Holy One, separate from all that He had created. That's a mystery right there as John's Gospel opens up. 
And Jesus himself, who quoted Deuteronomy 6, for the Lord our God is one, often spoke of himself as doing things that only God could do. He forgave sins. He claimed the right to judge at the end of time, the authority to raise the dead. That would have been blasphemy. Were it not true, his religious opponents thought it was blasphemy because he was claiming equality with God. On one occasion, Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Another time he said, the Father and I are one. He was making claims that if any other human being made them, they would have been considered either insanity or they would have been considered blasphemy. These God-fearing Jews who followed him and who believed in only one God bore witness to the reality that Jesus is God. That in itself is a mystery. How can the one God be Father and Son? Who was it that Jesus was praying to in the Garden of Gethsemane? Who was it that he was separated from on the cross? That mystery is given to us as God became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus. And if that weren't enough, Jesus and the early Christians spoke of the Holy Spirit in just the same way. The Spirit is a person, a who, not a what. And he is, as Jesus said, another one like me who will come and who will bear witness to you and he will teach you and he will comfort you and he will guide you. He does these personal things. The Spirit Jesus spoke of as separate from himself does the very same things that Jesus does. The New Testament writers, as they talk about the Spirit, sometimes refer him to, to the Spirit as the Spirit of God, sometimes as the Spirit of Jesus. Interchangeably, the Spirit, the Father, the Son are spoken of as one. Remember the scene at Jesus' baptism. As he is being baptized by John the Baptist, a voice spoke out of the heavens, the Father's voice, this is my Son in whom I, whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God descended upon him as a dove. There's a portrait there of Father, Son, and Spirit acting as one present at the baptism of Jesus. And at the end of Jesus' ministry, he commands us to go and make disciples and tells us to do what we do when we baptize. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul uh, closes several of his letters with words of blessing and benediction. One of them that we use sometimes in worship found in 2 Corinthians 3.14, one of the earliest New Testament writings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All spoken of in one breath. Revelation chapter 4 and 5, John describes the throne room of heaven in detail, um, picking up many of the images from Isaiah's vision that we read earlier. And there in John's vision, there is the one who sits on the throne, God. There is the lamb beside him and is surrounded by the Spirit of God. All three present in that one vision. What I'm saying is that although the word Trinity is not found in Scripture anywhere, the raw material that required the church to understand God in such a way is revealed to us in the New Testament through Jesus, Father, Son, and Spirit, all God, but distinct. The church in the first three centuries after the New Testament really struggled with how to express that theology, how to talk about our faith around this issue. 
The language of Trinity eventually became the common way of doing it, but not without a lot of jostling and arguing and infighting and name-calling and excommunicating and difficulty. It was a struggle. But finally, by about the fourth century, the Christian church had settled on this and put it into the language in what's called the, the Nicene Creed or Nicene Confession. And it's this language. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Now that's how we've come to confess that mystery as Christians. We're still not altogether clear what we mean by all of that. And all of our analogies become awkward. Some of them wind up emphasizing God's oneness to the expense of his threeness. And some of them emphasize God's threeness at the expense of his oneness. All of our physical comparisons, as good as they are, as we did last week, eggs and apples and other things like that, don't do justice to the oneness of God and the threeness of God. Even our personal comparisons to say that I am a father and I am a son and I am a pastor, those three things, that's ancient heresy called modalism. God didn't just show up as father in the Old Testament and son in the New Testament and spirit now. He is father, son, and spirit, always has been in oneness and threeness. Some of these emphasize the threeness too much, and that's heresy too. So we struggle to say, how has God revealed himself? Now, what do we do with all that? What difference does it make for us in the way we live? Why is Trinity such an important part of our understanding about God? I'm going to give you four really practical ways that it matters that we believe this about God and not something else. When we affirm the Trinity, we affirm the mystery of God. And that revelation keeps us from ever reducing God or trying to reduce God to someone that we think we can understand or explain. God is not a tool on our tool belt. We don't call on God and use God in any sort of way. We have to keep dealing in mystery, that which we cannot fully know and cannot fully comprehend. He is above us and beyond us. We can't succumb to the world's way of viewing everything as by its usefulness. God is not to be used. God will not be made relevant to our lives. That's not what we've been called to do. The Trinity teaches us to cultivate a sense of reverence in our life and to sing with the seraphs, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Because God is mysterious, we have to learn to listen and wait and submit. He's not God on demand. He's not a genie in a bottle to be summoned up to meet our needs. That's not what it's about. He's not there to work out our agenda. Rather, we are here to serve his will and his purposes. And so a life of worship and prayer and obedience and love is what's called for in the presence of this mysterious one who is one and three and three and one, indivisible in any way at all, and yet distinctive. Mystery 
is a part of our faith. We don't want a God we can explain, trust me. That makes us God and the one we can explain, our servant. Trinity affirms that our God is personal. Not, God's not an impersonal force like in Star Wars. He's a person who loves and cares and knows and wills and acts. He's a person who can be loved and worshipped and adored. God is a person. And if God is personal, the only way to respond to God is with a personal response. We respond to him as the person that we are. God is not an object to be learned about. He is a person to be known not reduced to words or doctrine, however accurate those words and doctrines might be. He's not to be turned into a what when he is a who. He is not to be turned into an it when he is a thou. We are supposed to know God as person. And Trinity reminds us of that. That God is Father and Son and Spirit. And Trinity affirms that our God is love. In 1 John 4, 8, when John says that God is love, he doesn't mean that God loves or that God loves a lot. He says it is at God's essence is love. If that is the essence of God, then for all eternity, God has been love, which means he's always had to have an object of love, not just waiting till he created us so he would have someone to love. It's to say that at the very heart of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit has existed this eternal love and equality and, and servanthood to each other that is at the very core of who God is. God is love. Trinity affirms that it has been God's nature and experience from all eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit have existed from all eternity in this life of mutual love and joy. God is love. Trinity affirms that. And Trinity, as a doctrine, invites us to participate in the world of God, the life of God. Trinity is God acting in salvation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, creating the world, creating us, and then stepping out to redeem us and call us into being as the church. The Father sends the Son for us. The Son offers himself on the cross. The Spirit reveals to us our need and God's reality and draws us to him. The Spirit effects new life in us, gives us new birth as we place faith in God. We are reconciled to the Father, Son, and Spirit. The redeeming God has acted to invite us into this life Experience this world, this Trinity-created, Trinity-guided, Trinity-filled world. One of the models for understanding the Trinity in ancient times was came out of among Greek thinkers. It's there's the Greek word perichoresis. It means the dance. You might see the word choreography in the heart of that. A Greek word for dance. Eugene Peterson describes this metaphor. Ancient church fathers thought about the Father, Son, and Spirit involved in this eternal dance in which the three are one. It's an, an attempt to understand. It doesn't fully explain. But hear this analogy. It's a beautiful one. Imagine a folk dance, a round dance, with three partners in each set. The music starts up, and the partners holding hands begin moving in a circle. On signal from the caller, they release hands, change partners, weave in and out, swinging first one and then another. The tempo increases. The partners move more swiftly with and between and among one another, swinging and swirling, embracing and releasing, holding on and letting go. But there's no confusion. Every moment is cleanly coordinated in precise rhythms as each person maintains his or her own identity. To the onlooker, 
The movements are so swift, it's impossible at times to distinguish one person from another. The steps are so intricate that it's difficult to anticipate the actual configurations as they appear. Perichoresis, to dance about. Trinity, that doctrine, to say this is how we understand God, means that we've been invited to the dance to join Father, Son, and Spirit in the life they share that's called the kingdom of God, to participate in the dance of bringing that reality on earth, to pray that God's will be done, his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The steps the Trinity knows so well in that dance are foreign to us, and we have to learn them, and we're awkward with them, but we can learn them over time by the Spirit's help. We learn the steps of love and mercy and justice and submission and joy and kindness, and there are so many others that are involved in this dance, and we're invited into it to share that life with God and the kingdom of God. So will you come to the dance? Will we come to the dance? Will we worship the Father who loves you, Son who adores you, the Spirit who comes to you. Will we adore the triune God who creates and sustains us? Will we respond with our hearts personally to the God who is a person to give ourselves to him? Will we allow the mystery of his holiness to cause us to bow in reverence? Will we join him in the dance? That's what Trinity's about. God, three, and one. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us of speaking about your holiness and nature as if we understand that. We do not. But you've revealed yourself to us in this way, and we want to understand all that you can let us understand, all that we're capable of. More than that, we want to live with you. We want to worship you as Father, Son, and Spirit. We want to know your redemption. We want to know the steps of the dance of the kingdom of God and participate in that with you. We want to know what it is to be loved and to love, to submit to one another, to serve one another, to live without quest for power, live in the way that you've called us to live as you demonstrated in the life of the Son, Jesus. And so, Lord, hear our offering of ourselves to you right now in this way. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.